last night before I went to sleep, I was just laying in bed and thinking to myself and kind of chuckling like, what do I say this morning? You know, it's like, well, mission boy, are you going to top yesterday? I have no clue. Um, but thank you so much. It meant an awful lot to myself, to my wife, my daughter. Um, just thank you. It just was very, very touching to just speak to so many of you. Um, I probably won't cry this morning, but there are no guarantees. Uh, I one time was mowing the lawn over there, and I was 18 years old, and I just started to think about just my spiritual condition in my life, and I just started to weep. So that's really good when you're on a mower and you're weeping, because, you know. And uh, it was like the, one of the first times that ever happened to me. And I wasn't joking when I said I desire to be a manly man like Jesus, who did weep. And I'm not a real weepy type of a guy. Um, as a matter of fact, this was shared last night, and uh, my dad's sitting over there. And real short story, one, one evening, my dad, I was helping him, I was 10 years old, he was drilling holes into a board, and he put the drill bit into his hand, and just didn't quite come out the other side. And he looked at me and goes, oh, rats. <laughs> now I'm going to have to go to the hospital. And I'm like, that's what I want to be. I want to be able to drill my hand and say, rats. <laughs> so I try to do that every day. I wake, no, I don't. But uh, like I told you, Danish heritage and all, you know, got to keep up with them Vikings. But uh, anyway, um, Noah, I'm, I'm lost because you told me. Okay, so you're going to do it? Okay, good. All right. So we've been talking about this fact that there are individuals who have never heard Jesus. There are people who are unreached. Uh, they exist. And as I told you yesterday, the little secret that we don't like to talk about too often is they're already here, as in they're in Iowa, they're all around America. I verified again, there are 521 people groups that live in the United States of America. And a number of those people groups don't know Jesus at all, except God graciously allowed them to live in this wonderful land of freedom where we can proclaim Jesus anytime we want. Except they are the others, and they are different. And they look different, and they speak differently, and they eat different foods which is probably a good thing to, you know, if you're a little adventurous. But, but they're there, so why should I care? I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm really good here. This is a great week. I'm enjoying this. And as I look out, I also understand that in one way or another, we kind of all resemble each other um, with our skin, with our faces, and we don't all look exactly the same. Um, but often the other doesn't exactly look like us. And that's that whole issue where I will not touch this matter, but there's the other and how they got here and what they're doing here, and, and should there be a wall or not. I understand all that. I watch that from afar. I watch that from the outside looking in, but I see the issues. I was going to bring a little thing, and I forgot it today, but I have a green card. I'm a legal alien in the country of France. I believe in legal immigration, and I think there should be a system because it's very helpful um, from the fact that I, my wife and I were tested for tuberculosis before we went into the country of France. I didn't mind. I, I've been fingerprinted. The French government has my fingerprints. So 
there's a lot of things I can I can no longer do in the country of France because they can find me, you know, and that's fine. I'm, I'm good with that. But I don't want to, that, that has nothing to do with this morning. It's just, why should I care? Why should I care about the other, the person who is not like me, and especially this group of individuals who've never heard about Jesus? There, there are some simple answers, but I think there's an answer that is often overlooked, and I'd like to get into that. So what we're going to do is I'm going to have an extended opening illustration about something that I discovered quite recently. And so we'll go to the next slide, and we're going to travel to Kerbet Kaifa. Yeah, that's kind of what I thought, just silence. Okay, thanks, I guess. Uh, I mentioned just to a few people, uh, I've discovered four years ago that I can go from Bordeaux, France to Tel Aviv for $80 round trip. I love discount airlines. It's the greatest thing that's ever happened in my life. And I'm only bitter about two things, COVID and canceling my flights the last two years. But I'll get over it because I'm going to go next year. And so I had this opportunity to get into the whole world of biblical archaeology and actually participate on a couple digs and, and with, with guys who have just giant heads. They're so smart about the Bible, but they love Jesus. And so they wanted to help everybody participating understand better the scriptures through places. So we're going to travel to Kerbet Kaifa. And I'm going to show you the next slide. It's smack dab in the middle of the country of Israel. It's about 20, 22 miles uh, southwest of Jerusalem, and it's a hill. And I'm going to show you just, so first of all, the next slide, here's a satellite photo, which doesn't give you much. And so in the next photo, this is Kerbet Kaifa. There's, uh, there was me and a bunch of goats, and that's it. I mean, that's Kerbet Kaifa, except, next slide, in the early 2000 teens, they didn't really discover because they knew it was here. Kerbet Kaifa is technically what we call a tell, which is just a hill where a two to three thousand year old city happened to have been at one point. And so they knew it was there, but they hadn't excavated it. So I'll show you in the next slide what they started to do. They started to uncover the old city walls, the old city buildings. They rebuilt some of them. It's a fascinating site because an amazing event occurred at this site. And I'm just going to show you a couple more pictures of the city gate as you go into the city, uh, some of the buildings, the old ancient buildings. Go to the next slide, and then you just see these things that are amazing because this isn't 2,000 years old. This is at least 3,000 years old. And yet you're hearing something incredible from Scripture happened in this site. And we'll go to the next slide. A certain little event in 1 Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Ezekiah. And the next word I can't say, but it's something, I don't know. And Saul and the men of Israel gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up at the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. David, Goliath, it's there. And so the next picture. Now, Kerbet Kaifa is on the far left, the line going down. There's a little thing called the Valley of Elah where a certain Goliath will lose his head. And on the other side is the camp of the Philistines. You have Gath, where he came from. And so Kerbet Kaifa, the city, witnessed one of the greatest 
one-on-one -on -one battles to ever occur in human history. I mean, it's just wildly important what happened here. Now, on the next slide, it's going to be a verse. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And you look at that and you're like, thank you, Mark. Um, Kerbet Kaifa? You kind of maybe skip that for one reason. Kerbet Kaifa is the Arabic name. Shirem is the Hebrew name. And Shirem means something. Shirem means, and I'm sorry, I forgot to flip that to English. So of all you French, Frenchy files, that means double door. Man, that's really embarrassing that I... I'm really sorry about that, because I thought I had converted all these from French to English, but uh, apparently not. Unless you're all going, oh, double porte. Uh, thank you, Mark. It is very good that you... Yeah. None of all y'all are doing that, are you? Anyway, so it means two doors. And now look at the next slide. Amazingly, they found two doors. Do you know how many other cities in this region that were, have been found by archaeologists have two doors? That would be zero, none. Jerusalem has a couple more gates, doors than two, but that's Jerusalem. There's no logical reason for this town to have two gates, two doors to enter into, except they just did it that way. And archaeologists found it. And do you know why they found it? Because the Bible's true. I mean, I got, a, I got a list as long as my arms, my legs, and a whole bunch of other you really tall gentlemen of stuff that archaeologists, archaeologists are finding even today that prove constantly the scriptures are true. And they found it. Now, I'm just going to show you a couple more. So that's the gate that would have looked out over the valley where David killed Goliath. That's the second gate that would look back toward the mountains where the Philistines fled, and as they were fleeing, the Israelites were attacking them. And in the next slide, this is what it would have looked like at the time. So you have two doors, a surrounded city, and it's almost 99.9% .9 certain that Saul and his uh, think tank and his generals would have been in that city watching David kill Goliath. And to stand there is just incredible. Imagine in your mind this little shepherd boy who's going to take on the immense giant before him. We'll go to the next slide. The one question that you need to ask, however, is the following. Is it really, really the city at the time of David? And that's where the archaeologists really get into their element and start to prove these things. So they found artifacts. I'm just going to go through this real quick. They found pottery handles and jug handles, things like this that are dated clearly to the time of David, King David. And so they know that with these artifacts and items that you see here, that clearly at the time when David would have been a shepherd boy and then a king, there were Hebrews living here because they can compare artifacts they find in Jerusalem and other spots that date to that time of David, and they can compare the, art, uh, the, the pottery and the handles, and it proves them. A couple other things that they found. They found weapons. They found axes clearly dating to the time of David. And they date all these things by the different metals that are being used. And there's just no doubt about it. These things come from the time of David when he would have been a shepherd boy and then the king. And the next uh, slide, there's a whole an analysis of bones and idols that they're able to do. So 
around Kerbet Kaifa, there were five cities that formed uh, the, the Philistine Empire. Uh, Gath being the most known. And in the next slide, I'll show you just a couple things. And so in the city of Gath, they started to do archaeological work also. And they came upon an entire pit of bones. It was absolutely amazing what they found. I'll show you the next picture. They found a little pig pelvis. Not Jewish at all. In the next slide, they didn't find just a pig pelvis. They found a whole bunch of pig bones. In the city of Kerbet Kaifa, when they started a search, I'll go to the next slide, guess how many of little baby pig bones they found? And I only did this because my daughter is an immense animal lover, and it drives her crazy that we'll be eating that later. But uh, <laughs> I'm going to show you how many they found. Next slide. Zero. Uh, sorry about that, because there should have been anyway. But this is another place they searched. Go to the next slide. Uh, I don't know what happened. I'm, I left something in France. It should say the word nothing. There you go. <laughs> Noah, bless you. None. Nothing. Zero. Zilch. There's no pig bones in Kerbet Kaifa. You know why? Because the Jews are not eating McRibs. They're just not. They're observing the commandments of the law. And go to the next slide. Another thing they did was they started searching in Ascalon, and that's on the, on the Mediterranean Sea. And they found, I'll show you the next one, they found an idol. And it's been proven that the Philistines prayed to their cow god. This is known in writings. And they found an amazing amount of idols that these people were praying to. And go to the next slide. A monkey god that they prayed to. They found the writings that proved, yes, they actually prayed to this false god. You go to Kerbet Kaifa, they found nothing. No idols at all. Which proves what? There had to have been Jews there. It's, it's, there's not a question, it's, it's, it's proof. Go to the next thing. They found an ostracon. Now, if you've geeked out in this biblical world as I did, then you're like, oh, an ostracon. And yeah, there's about four of us that really care about ostracons. I'm going to show you what an ostracon is. Next picture. It's a post-it note. Now, it's called technically a potsherd used as a writing surface. No, it's a stone post-it note. That's all it is. Meaning that you had a pot and your 12-year-old carried it and he broke it. Like, ah. Oh. Well, now we have some post-it notes. <laughs> That's one way to look at it. In 2012, a 17-year-old Israeli Jewish young man started hooting and hollering and going nuts. Professor, professor, look what I found. He found a post-it note with ancient Hebrew written on it. Um, I am so jealous of that kid, I can barely stand it. That's my life's dream, to find something that is amazing, but one of these days. So they cleaned it up. They enhanced the writing. This was written when David was a shepherd's boy. So what are Jews that are very observant, 
No pig bones, no idols. What are they writing on post-it notes to remind themselves? Such as, for instance, um, maybe some of you gentlemen last night started writing on your own post-it note. I've got to love my wife a lot, or that Stephen Moore is going to be all over up in my face, and he's going to get on me, and i got to hold her hand. and You know, that, that's good stuff. Write it down. Post it everywhere. So what did Jews do at this time? I'm going to show you next slide. They said, you shall not do it, but worship the Lord. And the problem is, is that to this day, nobody knows what it is, but, you know, don't do it. But that's like it'd be a really good thing to say to your children. Don't do it. And like, what? Exactly. Worship the Lord. <laughs> Judge the slave and the widow. I'm not sure what that means. Judge the orphan and the stranger. Again. Speck weird for a post-it note. Plead for the infant, plead for the poor and the widow. Rehabilitate, re, rehabilitate the poor at the hand of the king. Protect the poor and the slave. Support the stranger, the foreigner. And that last line absolutely blew these archaeologists away. And I'm going to show you why. In the next slide, this is called the Code of Hammurabi. It's actually in the, in the Louvre Museum in Paris. It's one of the most ancient, if not the most ancient, uh, documents that has codified laws and rules for a society. Look at what they say. They're written in that. In the next slide, you'll see this. So that the strong do not oppress the weak, so the justice is done for the orphans and the widows. So even unbelievers, those who did not follow Jehovah, those who are not based in an Old Testament type of concept, they had this idea, supporting the weak, helping doing justice for the widows, and it lacked one single word there, the foreigners. It's never mentioned. Nothing. Absolutely zero. Not one single even inference to someone who is not like us, the foreign, the strange, the person from a different land. In the next slide, I'm going to show you something that to me is quite fascinating. In Joshua 1.4, the verse says, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be, shall be your territory. So the Hittites, uh, if you, you, know, you read your Old Testament once, you, oh yeah, the Hittites, sure, kind of know they exist, but nothing more. The Hittites actually left an amazing amount of documentation to describe what kind of people they were. They loved their orphans, they loved their widows, and they despised foreigners. In the next slide, basically, if a foreigner would come into your land, you were given free reign to cast curses on them, beat them, and eliminate them if so needed. All around the nation of Israel, were other people groups that hated foreigners, despised foreigners, and had no problem killing foreigners. And one day in 2012, a 17-year-old Jewish, Israeli, Israeli Jewish young kid, he found a post-it note of people who wanted to live according to God's concept, God's principles. And so what did they write down on their post-it note, the last sentence? Support the foreigners. Why in the world would someone write that on a post-it note? And I know exactly why they would. I'm going to show you a couple of verses. Deuteronomy 24:17, do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice, or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. 
Next slide is another verse, Deuteronomy 27, 19. Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. I have one more verse, Exodus 22, 20. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner. And the rest of this is amazing for you were foreigners in Egypt. So, I think there's a logical question you could pose to me if we were speaking individually, one-on-one. You would look at me and, and, and maybe you would, you would take my hand or put your hand on my shoulder and you would look into my eyes and with a deep concern you would say, so when did you become a progressive? Okay, I'm joking. Uh, when did you become liberal? When did you want to open all the borders? I, I, I'm, I'm joking. I mean this. But this is a really tricky issue. Because immigration is a real deal. And the entire world cannot live in Ventura or Iowa or the entire United States. I get that. But let's just take it a different direction real quickly. Don't just think of skin color, hair type, language, ethnicity. Just for one second, think about the fact that you have a neighbor whose political views are to the left of Bernie Sanders. A little foreign, isn't it? To maybe the way you think. And having said that, you might sit there and you might grit your teeth. Is this dude a Republican? Because I ain't no Republican and I'm to the left of Bernie Sanders. Welcome to RBC. I don't care. I live in France. I mean, seriously, this is completely non-political. I don't care how you vote. I don't give a rip about this stuff. Again, I don't live here. If you live here, please be involved and, and actually fulfill the, the, the duties that God has stated in Scripture. But this is a completely, totally non-political message today. It's about that simple person in front of you who is just the other. I don't care who he is. I don't care, I don't care what they self-identify as. I don't care what their skin color is. I don't care about their political positions. God in the Old Testament gave commandments. He gave ideas of how his people should live and think of the others, the foreign person. Now, once again, you can look at all this and say, it's all good, my friend. Um, Go back to France and and may God be with you. But uh, we have our own deal here. We have our own issues here. And thank you, Mark, but that's Old Testament. And so uh, I'm not under the law, and those were given at the time of the law. So, And I get all that, but I say two things. When the people of God sought his face, sought his will, and wanted to do what he had commanded them, they wrote post-it notes. And that one I showed you, that's not the only ostracon that's been found. A lot of them have been found. That's the only one that talks about foreigners. But people in the Old Testament wrote things on clay pots to remind themselves what to do for the Lord. But God gave us the New Testament. And I'm going to show you God's command for us today. Go to the next slide. Romans 12, 13 says, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And you can look at that and you can say the following. All right, I'll invite somebody over for a meal, but he better be a Bears fan. 
or, you know, I was going to say this, and then I didn't. Now I'm going to say it anyway. I saw some poor little kid, and he was walking out, and he was like, his head was like this, walking out for his class. And I'm thinking, oh, he must have had a bad experience with the teacher, or maybe the other kids picked on him. And then I looked, and I realized he had a, a shirt, and it had number 12 on the front and said Rogers on the back. And he was like, <laughs> and about a third of us get that, don't we? Poor kid's soul was crushed. That made me so happy. But uh, anyway, my mom right now is going, what? What is he talking about? I'll explain it to you later, mom. It's football and stuff like that. So, so you're going to show hospitality. You're going to invite somebody over to your house for a meal because you're a nice person. That's not it. Let me show you something in this next slide. The word hospitality comes from a very specific word that has two parts. It's two part, it's actually two words that were put together. It can mean, at times, the act of being friendly and welcoming guests and visitors. And I took that strictly from uh, a dictionary I found on Google, so we know that's true. But, uh, but there's a second part of the word, or a second concept of the word, that was even used in the early 1900s. The friendly and generous reception and entertainment of guests, visitors, or foreigners. And I think, Noah, I have on the next slide a breakdown of that. Okay, there you go. So the word is composed of two things. Philo, phileo, the brotherly love, and xenos. Why did I put that in French? I'm out of my mind. Anyway, I truly apologize for that. Anyway, it's... You are literally the man. Thank you. Yeah, and you told me you didn't speak French. You liar. Anyway, no, did I do that or did you do that? Oh, I'll talk to you about it later, Noah. And the check's in the mail for saving me. So anyway, an affection, a fondness, a caring for a foreigner. And I remember the first time I really got a grasp of what Scripture means when biblical hospitality is practiced. It's not inviting your best friends over for a meal. That's actually called koinonia. That's actually called fellowship. It's also very biblical. But biblical hospitality is looking at the neighbor you've never spoke to, the new neighbors who you don't yet know, and don't speak your language, don't have your skin type, don't have your hair, don't have nothing. And you actually literally show them affection, fondness, and caring. And you don't even know their first name. And when they say their first name, you're like, yeah, your name is now Bob. Because I can't say that. I literally am incapable of pronouncing your name. And I'm yet going to show you affection, fondness, and caring. Because it's commanded. It's not Old Testament. It's not a post-it note. It's literally the words that come from the breath, the mouth of God, according to 2 Timothy 3.16. God himself has told every single one of you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, to have affection, fondness, and caring for Hakmed, the Muslim neighbor. Or Bob the guy from India. It literally doesn't matter. God is telling you right now, because these are his words, not mine, show hospitality. And it's not always easy. 
It's not always comfortable. There's just a lot of things that can be very difficult in doing this. And yet this is literally the commandment of God. Now, before I end, I'm going to show you two more things. Because Jesus Christ gave us an example. Jesus Christ showed us this example. And I know it says Matthew 15, and we're going to go to Mark uh, chapter 7. I apologize for that, but uh, I decided to change the parallel passages. But I think Mark chapter 7. So Mark 7, 24 gives us a really a great insight of how Jesus dealt with this concept of the other, the foreigner, the strange person. It says in Mark 7, 24, And from there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is up from the Sea of Galilee toward the northwest along the Mediterranean Sea. Jesus is outside of his comfort zone. He's outside of Israel. He is smack dab in the middle of a bunch of foreigners, a bunch of non-Jews. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden, which I don't 100% understand what that means because we don't know how Jesus was revealed, but I just find that fascinating. Poor Jesus, he couldn't go anywhere without tons of people. Oh, it's Jesus, and he's not even in Israel. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yikes. Um, on the surface, that's not the nicest thing that Jesus ever said. Seems that way. But there's two things to consider. First of all, calling Gentiles, non-Jews, dogs, was really, really, really normal in the time of Jesus. That's not shocking. But also, some of you might have a translation that says, the little dogs. And that's much closer to what Jesus said. So there's, uh, again, there's another thing to take out of that. Uh, this is, I need to be very careful what I say, because I'm not going to go too far with this, but... Um, there is an English word that describes a female dog, and I'm not going to say that word, but the concept was clearly much more of what, how that was used, especially with Gentile women. It was highly insulting, and Jesus did not use that word. And so when Jesus uses the word little dogs, he's saying that for the woman, because this is actually a test of her faith. Jesus is actually showing her compassion by saying, do you really mean this? Because... My disciples, and in the Matthew passage, you really see the disciples coming out and not being kind to this woman. And Jesus at that point is saying, you kind of know how we look at you, and I'm not even going to use the real word. And what does the woman say? But she answered him saying, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs, the little dogs under the table, eat the children's crumbs. And Jesus said to her, for the statement, you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. And in the parallel passage, we know that Jesus saw the great faith of this woman. And so what does Jesus show us here? Jesus not only went in amongst the foreigners, he spoke with a foreign woman, which a Pharisee, a leader, would have never done, and he acknowledged her great faith. And I firmly believe that we will spend eternity in heaven with this woman. 
And she had nothing to do with Israel, with the children of Israel, with the Jews, and with Jesus Christ himself, except she believed. But she would have never believed, she would have never been able to show this faith without Jesus going over and showing hospitality. And see, this strikes me profoundly. Why are there 40% of the planet who have never heard the name Jesus? Well, we saw in Romans 10. Because they've not yet received a, a, a messenger. They have not yet had someone who went over to them. Now, good luck with trying to be a missionary in Pakistan. Good luck with trying to be a missionary in all the stands and all the rest of that place. But they may be your neighbor. Or they may be a student at Ames, Iowa City, you and I, uh, all, all over. They may work in the packing plant next to your neighborhood, in your town. But I tell you this, they're here, and I'm going to prove it to you tomorrow. They're all over the place. But what about the foreigner you just don't know? He's got your skin, your hair, speaks your language. But just the neighbor who's a little weird because they had these certain signs or certain type of flag flying out, and you're just like, ah, I don't know, because as soon as we start talking, he's just going to start throwing all this garbage that I don't agree with. Yet are we willing to follow the example of Jesus? Go into enemy territory? Go into the foreign person's arena, his world? And simply show the love of Jesus Christ. I'm going to show you one more thing and I'm going to end with an illustration. I'm going to take you to Romans chapter 5. Because it's even more profound when you see the fact that this uh, hospitality and this concept of going and, and speaking to people who are not like us, the one that we consider the foreigner, it's literally an example of the gospel. So our concern for the foreigner is literally an example of the gospel. Romans chapter 5, start at verse 6. And there's just three main word groups that are very important. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, who were we before Jesus, before you became a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, a born-again Bible-believing Christian, use the terms you want, saved you were weak, and you were ungodly. God has never been weak, and God has never been ungodly. You were literally a foreigner to God. There is no logical reason that God should have ever shown any interest, had been implied into your life in any way, shape, or form because of what you were. I'm going to skip down verse 8. But God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So you're a weak, ungodly sinner. And Christ died for you. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, and this is so amazing, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. By his death, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You were a weak, sinner, ungodly, and an enemy of God. 
You were as literally as foreign, strange, apart, separated from God as an individual could be. And God said, I love that person there. I'm going to send my only begotten son to die for them. And now I'm going to sit in my home, in my apartment, uh, in my dorm room, and I'm not going to get up to the dorm room next to me, to the apartment next to me, to the house across the street, and speak about Jesus Christ because I'm uncomfortable with his skin or his language or his hair or his actions or I don't know. How dare we? When we see the example of Jesus Christ who made the ultimate leap from heaven to earth to save the foreigner. That's why we should care. Because sharing the gospel with the Muslim and the Hindu and the Buddhist and the guy from Pakistan and the guy from India and the girl from China is literally an example of what Jesus did for us. Now I'm going to close with the following illustration. This is Claude Apo. It's a man. It was a bad hair day. And what I mean is my dear friend Claude had the most massive, awesome comb-over in human history with curly, a curly hair comb-over. Beautiful! Until the wind picked up. And then my boy Claude got a little creepy looking, but it's okay. So I found out where Claude lived because I saw an article about him in the local newspaper and he was in a nursing home and I went to speak to him. And I had one of the most awesome afternoons in my entire life. So Claude, he was a young boy. His mother was Annette. Annette ran a cafe in the city of La Rochelle. Her husband worked at the port of La Rochelle where I live. He repaired ships and they were active in the community. And in the next picture, there's the port of La Rochelle, once again, suffering for Jesus every day of my life. Come to La Rochelle, I'll show you what it's all about. I have a beautiful life, I have to admit. Yeah. And they're, they're, the suffering is we don't get to see our family all the time, and God makes up with it with about, I don't know, 300 days of sun every, every year, so, you know, it's all good. And in the next photo, I'll show you, Claude was the only child of his parents. They loved him. They adored him. He was the light of their lives. And in the next picture, but something very tragic happened in 1940 in the town of La Rochelle. We'll go to the next photo. The Germans arrived and took over the town. And Claude's mother, she ran the cafe in this corner store right here. And Claude started to notice some things very odd. I'm going to the next slide he noticed that his parents suddenly got a radio. Never had a radio before. Hidden in the basement. Next slide. His parents started having these uh, newspapers, these things that were printed, victory and resist and fight. And the next slide. Claude told me he learned to juggle as a young boy with grenades. Uh, I mean, I guess that's good. I'm not sure, but... Uh, Weapons all over the basement of the cafe. And then the last picture is really touching. He suddenly discovered he had dozens and dozens of aunts and uncles that he never knew existed. And they came into his basement and they didn't speak French. It was this language that was... And he realized it was Yiddish. 
They are hiding Jews in the basement of their cafe. Claude's parents entered into the resistance. And sadly, in 1942, one of their dear friends denounced them. Turned them over to the Gestapo. Go to the next slide. The, this is the city hall of La Rochelle, France in the 1940s. You wanted to go see the mayor, you passed by German soldiers. The whole town was occupied. Go to the next slide. There was a submarine base where the U-boats would leave La Rochelle, headed over the Atlantic to sink American and British ships. Go to the next slide. And so everyone in the town had to go through these checkpoints. Everyone was controlled. Their identity papers. This is just like the film. Claude lived this. I'll go to the next slide. And so young Claude, he was nine years old, and his parents sent him away to a, 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 a family member that lived at the interior of the country of France. He was about two hours away. I'll go to the next slide. And this man right here, now I, I know his name, I know who he is, I know his whole life, and I'm not going to talk about it because it's not that important, but he ratted out Claude, his mother, and his father. And so in the next slide, early morning in July... 1942, the Gestapo arrived. We'll go to the next slide. At that store, one young man tried to escape. I know the street. I've walked it. I've thought about it. He got a bullet in his back. He died. I know exactly where a young man died because he was willing to hide Jews and fight the Nazis. Claude's mother was taken. She was arrested. On the next slide. She was taken to what today is the mental hospital of La Rochelle. That time was just a regular hospital. We'll go to the next slide. And right there... That woman was beaten in manners that I will not speak about because she was broken badly. And there's a memorial to not only her, but many others that were beaten. We'll go to the next slide. Well, it's the prison there. In memory of those who were tortured and shot by um, Hitlerian barbarism. The French are very descriptive when they talk about what they lived through. Claude's mother then was taken from there. We'll go to the next slide. To a prison in Bordeaux, France, where once again she was interrogated, she was tortured. From there, she was sent to another prison. I'll show you these things here. Her photo was taken, and you can start to see that her face changes. This is within two weeks from when she was looking very robust. She's obviously under a great amount of stress. She was then taken to Paris, we'll show you the next slide, and put into a, like a holding pin. And they were trying to figure out what they were going to do with this, this group of women they'd caught in the resistance. Well, the next slide... And she was put on a train, and she was taken to Auschwitz. And on the way to Auschwitz, she went by what you would say Reims, and you pronounce it Reims, but it doesn't matter. They, everyone knew if you wrote a letter to a family member or someone and you threw it on the train tracks, early, early in the morning, the resistance would come and they would gather all these letters and they would take them and eventually send them on to the family members. We'll go to the next slide. I'm sitting with Claude. He's telling me this story. He's weeping like a baby. I'm trying to keep it together. And he says, Mark, would you like to see the letter my mother wrote me? <laughs> I, mean, I was trembling. like, uh, yeah. He had it. His mother is in a cattle car with over 100 other French women who are going to be sent to Auschwitz. And he's got this letter, and it's absolutely amazing. She's encouraging him to continue the fight. He's a 10-year-old. Keep it up. Fight for France. We must gain liberty. We must resist. We'll go to the next slide. She arrived at Auschwitz. And then the next slide, it's pretty amazing. And I did not know this. They didn't immediately go into the camp. They would take the women, and they had a specific building, building number 14. And the next slide, you'll see something that just blew my mind. 
That's a month after she was arrested and tortured. They basically prepared her, prepared her to live in what the Germans called hell. And it's not hell. Hell is a real place and much, much worse than this. But Claude's mom, she went into this prison. They, they taught them this is what's going to happen to you. They took great glee and joy in saying, you will live the following things. And after two weeks, she was sent to these barracks. And about two days after she had been in these barracks, she walked out. The French women were on the left, and there was a Jewish quarters on the right. And a Jewish woman was laying on the ground, and in German she was saying, Wasser, Wasser, which means water. And it was figured that she was literally dying of thirst. She was just reduced to nothing. The skin was tight on her bones, and Claude's mom could not take it. And she went, and the next slide she got a cup, a little tin cup, and she filled it with water, and she went out to the woman, and she started to give the water to the woman, and a prison guard turned the corner, and her life changed radically from that point. Again, she was savagely beaten. The next day, she was taken in front of 240 other French women, and they would, at that point, they declared, this afternoon, you will be shot to death because you tried to give a Jewish woman a cup of water. 240 French women broke out into the French national anthem. They're weeping. There's tears. She was given an instant to write a second letter to her son, Claude. And I think I have a picture of that. Well, she was taken and she was shot in this general area. I think I have a picture of that letter, yeah. And again, Claude, he's just, he's falling apart constantly telling me the story. And do you, would you want to see this letter from my mom? It's an amazing letter. Again, son, today I die. But fight, resist. And do you know why she got shot? Because she helped a foreigner. There's no logical reason that she should have bent down and started to give this Jewish woman a cup of water. She's not Jewish. She's not German. She has no contact with this woman other than another human being in front of me is dying. And I must show compassion. I must show love. And I think I have one more slide. Before she died, she described her son. I mean, she's going to die in a couple hours. She described her son to a woman, a tremendous artist, a French woman in the prison, also a prisoner. And she drew this picture. And again, Claude's like, do you want to see the picture that the woman drew of me? And I'm like, Claude, yes. Uh, please show me these things. And I think I might have one more slide. I'm not sure. They shot her. They just killed her. In the 1990s, this story was discovered. Claude started to speak openly about his mother. And the Jewish government found out about it, and they recognized Annette Apo. She's a citizen of Israel today. This is a person of honor. When, uh, our, uh, Schindler, I can't think of his first name, but he got this award. Many, many thousands of people that saved Jews have received this award. Again, Claude had this. He's like, look, my mom. She's been dead since 1942, but she's a Jewish citizen. He was so proud of his mother. I think I have one more slide here. In the late 90s, Annette Apo was recognized for the work she did. In the, 18, uh, the 28th of July, 1942, two resistance members were killed in front of that cafe, and Annette was taken to Auschwitz 
where we sh- she was shot for giving a cup of water to a deported Jew. You know, there's one word there. You can probably figure it out. Second line, second word. Annette was a communist. She didn't believe in God. She was an atheist atheist. She didn't do this for Jesus. She didn't do this for God. She did it for humanity. And when I learned that, that struck me harder than probably anything I've ever heard in my life. A French communist atheist risked her life, paid the ultimate price to give a cup of water to a dying Jew in Auschwitz. And sometimes I'm not too hip about crossing the street and talking to my Muslim or Buddhist or foreign neighbor. It shamed me when I saw that. Because I have the example of Jesus Christ. I have the example of my own salvation. And I had to learn to get over myself. And how often I look at the foreigner, the other, the person not like me. A French communist atheist taught me something. But what it taught me more than anything is to come back to the scriptures. Her example is fine. Jesus blows her example away because Jesus died for her. And so I'm going to end, I'm going to pray, but please just, just think about it. Think about the example of Jesus. Think of what Jews did when they wrote post-it notes. Think about your salvation. And then just start to turn in your mind. Who is the other? Who is the foreigner that lives in my neighborhood, that is at my work, that is in my town, that I need to follow the example of Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for everything you give to us. And Father, thank you that you can even take a communist, atheist, French lady's example and encourage us to go way beyond anything that she could have ever done or experienced. And so, Father, we just pray that you would help us to understand the important principles of the foreigner, of the other, of hospitality. And God, may we see many, many foreigners, unreached people saved in the United States simply, Lord, because we took the time to give a gospel track, a Bible a moment of uh, of friendship. Father, we thank you that you loved us while we were your enemies. We thank you, Lord, that you love the foreigner. And God, help us to do such things also in our Christian lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.